If you're able, let me ask you to please stand as I read aloud the Word of God. We're in the second week of many weeks looking at the book of Revelation. And again, the same almost identical passage that we read last week, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 4a. You can follow in your own Bibles or in the bulletin, however you choose. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Would you please be seated, and once again, would you join me in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we ask this morning that your Spirit would be here at work, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear, all that the Spirit has for the church in this book. We ask, Lord God, that whatever are our preconceived notions that are not born out of your word by the work of your Spirit, that you would help us to disown those things. We ask, Lord God, that whatever comes from your word that is given to us by the Spirit, that we would own those things, that they would remain in our hearts, that they would be used by you O Lord God, to sanctify us, to make us more like your son Jesus. We thank you for the privilege of reading and of discussing your word together. Now would you be here present with us as we do so. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask all of this. Amen. This past week, I was over at my neighbor's house replacing one of their door handles. And this neighbor is probably the neighbor that we're closest with in our neighborhood. It's an elderly couple, and we have a really good relationship with them. We often have long, good, meaningful conversations. And every once in a while, they'll ask me to come over and help with a house project. Not very often. Uh, But when I do, we inevitably get to have those long, meaningful conversations. And so there I was. I'm changing the door handle. Uh, leading outside of their house. And this moment, we began a conversation about our other neighbor who had just passed away this past week. And uh, this older couple was explaining to me that this neighbor was just, he had gone out for a walk with his wife. He came home. He sat down in his recliner. They were having a conversation. She stepped out of the room, and when she came back, he was gone. He had passed away. And I I remarked to her, I said, well, that's the way that I want to go. I want to live to a ripe old age. I don't want to experience any pain and suffering. I want to sit down in my recliner. I want to be there one second, and then one second, I want to be gone. And she said to me, she said, Brian, we're not going to die. We're going to be lifted up into the clouds. And at that moment, I didn't quite know how to respond to her. In One way, I think that definitely captures the mindset of the modern American church when it comes to the end times, okay? 
And I appreciate that because it carries with it a serious sense of vigilance. That is to say, it carries with it this biblical attitude that be on the watch, be on your guard, for no one knows the day and the hour that Christ will return. And that's a really good thing. On the other hand, I think it feeds into one of the greatest weaknesses of the modern American church, and that is this, that all of the Bible revolves around me and my time period and the things that are happening in my life and the current events that I'm witnessing and the trials and the turmoil that I'm experiencing, okay? It's the kind of mindset that says that Christ is coming back in my generation. I'm I'm confident of it. It's a strange mentality to me to, to read the Bible through these lenses. And I tell you, we do this with the book of Revelation more than we do it with any other book of the Bible, don't we? Because we can book, pick up the book of Genesis and we can say, yeah, this book, it applies to my life, but I, I know, of course, it's about the creation of the world. It's obvious. We can pick up the book of Matthew and we know that it's about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when it comes to the book of Revelation, for some strange reason, we open this book and we say, well, this is all about the current events of my life. And so we justify the fact that we believe our suffering is greater than any suffering in the course of the history of the world. And our turmoil is greater than any of the turmoil that's ever been experienced in the Christian church up until this point. It's for that reason that many people read the book of Revelation and they find Barack Obama, Vladimir Putin, the European Union or the United Nations, I mean, fill in the blank of the things that have been found in the book of Revelation. That is a me-centric interpretation of this book. This morning, as we talk about Revelation through the introduction here, one of the things I want to emphasize is that this is a book, the Revelation of Jesus Christ from God the Father, that is given through a particular person, John the Apostle, to a particular audience, as you will see, to deal with very particular issues. Okay? It will be applicable to us, certainly, but we must recognize that God is writing through a particular person to a particular audience for a particular reason. Right? And we're going to talk about that this morning. We began last week looking at this introduction. I told you I was giving you seven principles for interpreting the book of Revelation. Last week we did three of them. This week we're going to do four of them. So last week we talked about how Revelation is apocalypsis. It is semano and it is prophecy. It is apocalyptic, it is signs and symbols, and it is prophetic. This morning four more principles for understanding this book. And I forgot to mention this. It's very important. I forgot to mention this last week. Okay, here's my disclaimer for the book of Revelation. There's a high probability that over the next six months, I'm going to offend at least some of you, okay? High probability, or at the very least, that we're going to disagree. Here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to leave from here and be upset inside, but just leave it inside and be simmering every Sunday. I also don't want you to go through the whole uh, sermon giving me dirty looks, okay? That, That would not be helpful. Rather, I would encourage you, if I offend you, if you disagree with something, to grab me after the service, to send me an email. Let's have the conversation week in and week out so we could talk about the Word of God, okay? That would be a profitable use of this Word. So this morning, four principles for understanding the book of Revelation. The first one is very simple. You can see it in the insert in your handout. This book is delivered through God's servant, the Apostle John. So it is through the Apostle John. Now, we know as much at the very beginning of this book because we see in the first verse that God made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. 
And you might be thinking, okay, I see that John is there, but how do you know that this is the Apostle John, not just some John, the follower of Jesus, okay? We're going to see, uh, as we read this book, we're going to see a number of contextual clues that will tell us this isn't just some John, this is indeed the Apostle John. The first one comes a few verses after this in verse 9, okay? In verse 9, as John is introducing himself, he says, I, John, while I was in prison for the sake of the Word of God and the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ on the island of Patmos. And we know through the course of church history that John the Apostle was imprisoned on the island of Patmos. And I want to begin by drawing this because I believe it's going to be helpful as we look at the book of Revelation. Okay? This is the Mediterranean Sea. Roughly. It's roughly the Mediterranean Sea, okay? The Mediterranean Sea, and we know that a lot of biblical history happens over here in Jerusalem uh, and in Israel, okay? Uh, we know that up here is what we would call modern-day Turkey, and over here is Greece, and then over here is Italy. There you have it, the Mediterranean Sea. John is imprisoned on the island of Patmos, which is here, somewhere between Turkey and Greece, off of uh, the shore of, uh, again, Turkey and Greece, in the Mediterranean Sea. There John was imprisoned later in life, okay? And you might be thinking, wow, it, seems, it sounds pretty exciting to be on an island in the Mediterranean Sea. We pay good money to go on cruises on the Mediterranean Sea. Um, but it wasn't like that on the island of Patmos. This was a penal colony on the island of Patmos, very similar maybe to what you might imagine with the island of Alcatraz, okay? So John is imprisoned on the island of Patmos, I'll label it in case you forget, this is Patmos, and he receives this vision from the Lord Jesus Christ as he's speaking to these churches, okay? So he receives this vision. Now, we're going to talk about John this morning and what we know about John. Uh, John will be an important character through this book as he writes to these churches, but here he is imprisoned, and we know that John is a disciple, uh, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, a follower of Christ. We, we don't know exactly when he writes this letter. Uh, some people have suggested that it's during the reign of the Emperor Nero. Others have suggested during the reign of the Emperor Domitian that would put it in the 60s or the 90s AD. As we talk about the book, you'll see why those two ideas are helpful, but it's not important that we camp on one or the other necessarily. Uh, but John is the one who is recording this vision that he receives from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Apostle John. This will become increasingly important as we talk about uh, this book and as we look at what is the meaning of Revelation. So here's the second point, and it goes hand in hand with the first point. Not only is this book written by someone, but it is also written to someone, okay? Now we get uh, this kind of broad category in verse 1. It says that is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants. Okay? So broadly speaking, the, the, the book of Revelation is addressed to the servants of God. You're very familiar with that, that word. It's the Greek word doulos. It's often used in Scripture. It is synonymous with the church. It is those who are subservient or submissive to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this book is in one breath broadly addressed to all the church. Now that goes hand in hand with what we said last week. It's understandable. That is, a child can read it, a grown-up can read it, a new believer, an old believer, uh, and they all can comprehend something of what's happening in the book of Revelation. But this introduction goes on to give us not only the broad 
audience to which this letter is written, but also the specific audience. And we begin seeing that in verse 4. That's why it was included at the end of the reading this morning. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. As we read this book, it's going to be important to recognize that the revelation of Jesus Christ given through John the Apostle, is first and foremost delivered to seven churches that are in Asia Minor. Now I'm going to put them on the map, okay? So Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, John is writing to these seven churches, all right? And they're kind of scattered here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They're scattered here in a a little bit of a semicircle. And uh, that is uh, part of the nature of this letter is that it was a circular letter. So it was sent from church to church to church, it was read aloud, and then it was passed along to the next church. John lists them in the order that they actually would have been delivered to. So you have Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea in that order. So as we read chapters 2 and chapters 3, and we read an address to Ephesus, and then we read to Smyrna, that's actually the order that the letter would have been delivered to them. They would have listened, they would have recorded and they would have passed the letter along to the other churches, okay? So first and foremost, as we talk about Revelation, we have to recognize that this is a letter to seven particular churches in Asia Minor. I have to tell you, I think a little bit of history is important then for understanding why it's so significant to mention these seven churches, okay? So let's give a little bit of history on the Apostle John. You remember the Apostle John? You probably roughly know the details of his life. He begins following the Lord Jesus. It's recorded early in the Gospels. And John is well known by most historians as the youngest disciple of all the disciples. Okay? It is uh, believed by many people today that John, when he begins following Jesus, is maybe 12 or 13 years old. Yeah, really young. Maybe as old as 14, I don't know, but he's a, he's a young guy. He's the youngest of the disciples, okay? We also know that as time goes on and we talk about this book of Revelation, John will be the last living apostle of all the apostles. So he also lives a very long life. We'll talk about the end of his life in a moment. John, though, he appears, first of all, in the northern parts of Israel. We see him there near Galilee, and then he comes down with Jesus into Jerusalem. And you remember one of the last things that Jesus says to John? He commissions John, his beloved disciple, to care for his mother, okay? So Jesus asked John to care for Mary. And what we know from church history is that John cares for Mary in Jerusalem and in Israel until the time of her death, sometime in the 40s A.D., Okay, so John stays there after Jesus ascends into heaven and he cares for Mary. After that time period, John goes up and this is what he does, okay? Sometime in the middle of the 40s, he goes up and he becomes the pastor of the church of Ephesus, okay? So John becomes the pastor of the church in Ephesus. It's a church that had Christians that were there. The church had been planted and John now becomes the pastor of that church. John remains the pastor of that congregation until the time of his death, sometime around 98 or 102 A.D. I was about to say B.C. That would be incorrect. Okay? So John, who leaves in the 40s, becomes the pastor of Ephesus, remains there as the pastor for another 50 or 55 years. That's amazing. And, and so John pastors uh, there in Ephesus at this church. 
church, okay? And if you're, if you're wondering how do we know that, we know that for a variety of reasons. One of the really great indicators that this is happening is you read through the book of Acts, you get to Acts chapter 13, and there's John, and John's in Acts chapter 14, and somewhere in Acts 14, John kind of drops off the map, and we don't see him through, through the rest of the book. He's not at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, which would have happened in 48 A.D., He's not there, and then church history records the fact he's not there because he had left to go to Asia Minor to plant the church, okay? As John is the pastor in Ephesus, he is intimately involved in the work of planting churches in Smyrna and in Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea, okay? So much so that, let me tell you something, as John writes to these seven churches, I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that they identified him as their beloved pastor, okay? The one that they dearly loved, responsible for delivering to them the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who was faithfully with them in the midst of persecution and is now imprisoned on the island of Patmos, right? So how does that help us to understand the book of Revelation, Okay. Well, it's a significant detail that tells us a number of things about the historical content or context of the letter that is being delivered to these seven churches. You see, if we're to understand the book, we must understand the history and the context of what was happening when this letter was first delivered. Gerhard Voss put it like this. He says, no one will be able to handle the word of God more effectually than he to whom the treasure chambers of its historic meaning have been opened up, okay? And you, you see what he means there. We won't be able to rightly discern the Word of God until we understand what God was saying to the audience in which, to which this letter was delivered. So it is important to us to begin to ask questions what was happening in these seven churches, and why does God address them with this revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me give you, as, as we talk through this book, we'll talk about a number of things that are happening to the churches in Asia Minor, but let me give you a little bit of a, a flavor or a feel of what was happening at this moment to the churches in Asia Minor, these seven churches that John pastored. Okay? Whether we believe that John is writing in the 60s or the 90s A.D., it is a time period that will be defined by mass persecution of the Christian church, okay? Uh, Tacitus, the historian, who's not a Christian, but he records the details of what was happening to the Christians at this time. He says that the persecution began in mass upon the burning of Rome, and Nero, the emperor, he blames the Christians at that point. And then, then all those Christians who refused to worship the emperor, they were murdered, Okay? And Tacitus records a number of different ways that Christians were martyred at this time. And he says that they were beheaded and they were burned at the stake. It is a common tradition that John, the apostle, that they tried to kill him by boiling him, okay? But he didn't die. Uh, Tacitus says that the, the favorite way of killing Christians at this time was dressing them in wild animal skins and feeding them to, to wild hungry dogs, okay? The things that happened to the Colosseum that you're aware of. I mean, John, John, his apostle will be Polycarp. You remember Polycarp? Polycarp is the bishop 
of the church in Smyrna, Polycarp, as an old man, will be burned at the stake. And it says that it was, it was wet there, and they tried like three different times to light the fire, and it started to burn him, but then they had to light it again to, to continue the burning of Polycarp. And he refused to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. The conditions, the setting to which this revelation is delivered to the churches in Asia Minor is nothing like they had ever experienced and likely nothing that they would experience after that. The danger that was confronting them, and you think about the way this was being received by them. They are those to whom the gospel had been delivered. They knew that Jesus Christ had come, died, been resurrected, and ascended into heaven. They received the word of God from the apostles. And from the point of Christ's ascension, no, from the point of his birth, really, from that point forward, all they had witnessed was tribulation and suffering. Every one of the apostles who had delivered the message to them had been crucified or martyred or suffered or tormented or were now imprisoned. Their beloved pastor had been removed. They had witnessed or were about to witness the destruction of Israel and of Jerusalem and of the temple and the dispersion of not only the Jews but the Christians. They were being hunted within the Roman Empire, not only by the, the Roman government, but, but also by apostate Israel. Everyone was against the Christian church at this moment, and they were likely asking this question, what in the world is God doing? Has He forgotten us? Has all of this just been made up? Doubting the promises of God. You see, it's to that church that the revelation of Jesus Christ is delivered. And as we read Revelation, I know we're going to want to put ourselves into the book of Revelation, but we have to see what was happening in the church and why God reveals this vision through the Apostle Paul to be delivered to his beloved churches that they would see not only their suffering has a place, that their tribulation is part of the plan of God, but also that Christ is victorious. That he hasn't simply disappeared, but he is seated on his throne, reigning victoriously. Okay, so that's the context of the church that this letter is delivered to. The third point, here's the third point. I, uh, I messed up, I made this outline two weeks ago, and here's what I want you to do. I want to cross out that third point on the insert. That is not the third point. This is a circular letter, but we don't need to talk about that much. Here's the third point. This book has a contemporary uh, realization a contemporary realization, and here's what I mean by that. I want to talk about that. We're going to read this book, and we're going to see a number of time words, okay, words that indicate the timing of the fulfillment of the book of Revelation, and we can't simply ignore or avoid those words. We have to deal with them. You saw two of them this morning. In verse 1, as we were reading the introduction to this book, it says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place, okay? And then you saw there in verse 3 another time word. It says, you know, blessed are those who keep what is written in this book, for the time is near, okay? And, and as we read the book of Revelation, we're going to see these words appearing in the text, and we're going to have to reconcile with them. We're going to have to deal with the fact that this is how God reveals His Word, and we're going to have to ask important questions like, what does God mean that these are the things that will soon come to pass, or the day is near? Now, let me give you a few suggestions that people have made, and then I'll tell you why I believe these are all insufficient explanations, and we'll talk about what I think this means, okay? First of all, some people have said, 
uh, I don't believe that John actually means what he's saying. Yeah, he uses those words, but it doesn't, it doesn't really mean that these things will soon come to pass. And let me tell you why that's a problem. It's a problem because if you take the words that John uses, for instance, in verse 1, when he says these things will soon come to pass, if you look at every use of that word in the Greek New Testament, every time that word is used, it means soon, like in, in the immediate future, like it is coming, you can count on it that it will happen, not in the far future, but it will happen in the near future. In Acts chapter 24, Festus, he's saying that he wants to go to Caesarea to see Paul, and, and the, the text is translated, I will come to see you shortly. Okay, that's what it says. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.14, Timothy, I'm going to come visit you, and you know what? I want to come do that shortly. That's how the word is often translated in the Greek New Testament. So that this word always means a soon manner, that it will happen soon. Not in the distance, but in the immediate future. So that's what the word means. Second idea that many people have postulated. They have said, well, at the beginning of Revelation chapter 1, God says that these things will soon come to pass, and what he's referring to is the first three chapters of Revelation. And so they divide up the book, and they say that the first three chapters is the address to those seven churches, and then we have the vision from chapter 4 through 22. And when chapter 1, John says these things will soon come to pass, what he really means is the, the revelation of the, of the words to these particular seven churches, but he doesn't mean the vision from chapters 4 through 22. Now that is an argument that we could talk about and we could debate about, but there's also a major problem with that argument as well. Because as you go through the book of Revelation, you're going to see these words pop up again and again. For instance, we get to the end of the book, Revelation chapter 22. The angel says to John, as the vision is concluded, he says, do not seal up the words of this revelation, do not seal up the words of this vision, for the day is near. Okay, that's the end of the book. As a matter of fact, then, we have a book that is bookended by instructions that these things will soon come to pass. The day is near. These things will soon come to pass. And so we can't divide up the book and say one fulfillment present, one fulfillment future. There is a continuity in the way that this book is revealed that puts it all together as John shares it, as Christ reveals it and John shares it. Some other people have suggested that maybe what this means is to God a day is an hour and an hour is a thousand years. You've heard that before as well, right? Now, I don't know if you've thought through that argument very long, but that also is problematic, probably the most problematic of all the arguments. Because when God reveals himself and he says, a day to me is a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, he is speaking in a very poetic way, revealing to his hearers that he is omniscient and omnipresent, that he stands outside of time, that he's not bound by time or space, and it speaks of God's character, and it's beautiful. But that's not what's going on in the first chapter of Revelation. You look at the context. God is not speaking here trying to describe something about his character, is he? Rather, he's speaking to the seven churches, and it is clear that he's telling them, be prepared. These things are about to happen. And if we believe then that God is saying, hey, to me a, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is an hour, but he's communicating to them the sense of urgency as if the, the time is near, then what we've made God to be is a manipulative wordsmith, okay? That he uses his words to communicate one message when he really means something else. That he has impressed upon the original hearers, the time is near, these things are about to happen. Oh, but you know, I, I really meant it was a thousand years, okay? Gotcha. That 
dare I say, is a hermeneutical slippery slope. It is a dangerous place to be if you read God's revelation and you can't make sense of it, so therefore you make it say something else, okay? I don't think we want to go there. Maybe we do. Maybe we'll have that conversation afterwards, but I don't think we want to go there. See, here's the thing. I think the most plain, easiest reading of what we just read is the right reading of the text. I think when God says these things will soon come to pass, that when he says the day is near, that in Matthew 24, when he's revealing the same thing, he says to those who are listening, he says, this generation will surely not pass away until all these things have come to pass. I think when God says that, that he actually means that. It's it's the easiest, most logical reading of the text. So one of the things we're going to find, and I know we're going to struggle with it, is that this book of Revelation has a lot of fulfillment with the contemporary audience. And I say a lot because there are always things within Scripture that are future, and we will find those things in this book as well. That'll be part of our job over the next six months. But this book is fulfilled largely in the contemporary audience, okay? And I know we're going to struggle with that. Why do we struggle with that? I don't know. I think it's partly because we, we have always found ourselves in the book of Revelation. We've, we've always found this to be a book about our time and our circumstances. But let me suggest to you something. It, it, one of the questions that you might have is, well, if this book has been fulfilled in, first, in the first century um, and largely had to do with the churches in Asia Minor, then what does it have to say to us? How does it apply to us? I do believe it applies to you, and I'll, we'll kind of end this morning by talking about that. But let me ask you a more important question. If this book has to do with 21st century America, then what does it have to do with the churches in Asia Minor? It has nothing to do with them. If this book is all about Apache helicopters and nuclear war, then, then how in the world were the churches that were suffering at this moment to which this letter is written, how in the world were they supposed to make sense of it? What application does it have for them? One, one commentator put it like this. He said, if this book spoke, as some would have us believe, of the Huns and of Goths and of Saracens and of medieval emperors and of popes, and of the Protestant Reformation, and of the French Revolution, what possible interest or meaning could it have for the Christian churches of Ephesus and Smyrna? That's an important question for us to ask, okay? Let me make a humble suggestion, I hope, that will help us as we talk about this book. Um, and I want to do that by drawing a timeline. And I know as you talk about Revelation and draw timelines, everybody's like, oh, don't do that. Get a little like... The heebie-jeebies when you draw timelines associated Revelation, I feel the same way, so believe me. This is going to be a, a very vague timeline, but I think it helps you thinking about the book. Um, we have to understand the book of Revelation, as I said last week, through the Old Testament prophets, okay? So here are the Old Testament prophets. They stand before the coming of Christ, and they prophesied, okay? And the Old Testament prophets over the course of 1,500 years or more throughout the entire Old Testament, they, they prophesied. And what happened as the Old Testament prophets spoke, you saw it this morning in Daniel chapter 2. They always did a number of things. They spoke about things that had recently happened. They spoke about things that were happening at the present and about to happen in the near future, okay? So Daniel speaks about events that are happening to Nebuchadnezzar. Isaiah speaks about things that are happening in apostate Israel. Jeremiah speaks about things that are happening in the divided kingdom. And then a small part of what they spoke about was looking forward to the future, the coming of Christ. Okay? That was always true of all the prophets. Go back and read any of the prophets. You'll find these things to be true. 
And when they spoke about the coming of Christ, they had these catchphrases they would use. They would talk about it as the latter days, okay, as the last days, as the end days. Uh, one prophet, I think Joel, says, after those days, okay? Those are the phrases that you knew they were using to speak about the future coming of the Messiah, okay? Those phrases are used. Now, what happens is we get into the New Testament, and the writers of the New Testament speak about the time of Christ forward as the last days, okay? That the coming of Christ initiates or inaugurates the end of days. That's what the writer of Hebrews means. And in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews says, in former times, God spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ, okay? So the New Testament views the coming of Christ through his resurrection and ascension as these are now the end days. What you see, importantly, is that we're living in the end days, as was the first century Christians, okay? The church in Asia Minor, just like the church in Lynchburg, Mercy Presbyterian Church. Revelation, the book, is given to John right here after the coming of Christ, and John will do very much the same thing as the Old Testament prophets, okay? So he's now in the vein or in the genre of or in the same paradigm as the Old Testament prophets. He will speak about events that have come to pass. We'll read some things. We'll say, well, that sounds like the, the death of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus. That's in the book of Revelation. He will speak about some things that are happening or about to happen there with the church in Asia Minor. And some, but not the majority of what John speaks about, will be about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? You ask me how I know that or how do I come to that conclusion. As we go through this book, you're going to see Example after example after example. I'll give you one, and then we'll just kind of move off this point. In Daniel chapter 12, when the angel is giving a vision to Daniel, you know what he says to Daniel? He says to Daniel, bind up these words and seal them, close them up, for the time of the end is not, not near. Okay, that's Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. If you go to the end of this book, what does the angel say to John at the end of this book? He uses the same language, but he tweaks a little bit. What does he say? He says to John, do not bind up the words of this book. Do not seal them, not for the end is not near, but what does he say? For the day is near, okay? There's a point when, by understanding the Old Testament prophets, we're, we're able to begin to make sense of what's happening in the book of Revelation. The angel said to Daniel, bind up these words, for the end is not near. The angel says to John, do not bind up these words, for the day is near. You see there John receiving the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, finds himself at the moment or immersed in the moment of the end times, the end days, okay? The revelation of Jesus Christ. So as we look at this book, we are going to find that much of what we talk about describes the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, his ascension, his being seated on the throne. It references and talks about the suffering and the persecution that was happening to the church in Asia Minor, and it will also speak about the final second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these things can be found in the book. Now, again, you might be asking the question, then, well, how is it applicable to us? It's applicable to us like any other book of the Bible. The Bible is not about us, but it is given to us, okay? It is not about us, but it certainly is applicable to our lives, isn't it? For the, the Word of God is living and active. All of it. It divides between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. It is given to us 
for exhortation and for rebuke and for reproof and for encouragement. That as we read about trials and sufferings, we realize that we also have our own trials and suffering. That we too are tempted to disown the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow the beast. That, that we too are enduring our own types of trials and suffering. This is delivered to the church in Asia Minor, but it doesn't mean that it's not applicable to our lives. It is applicable in every way, and we will also talk about those things, okay? And that, that's my last point. It's very brief. Why is it applicable? It's applicable simply for this reason. John says in verse 2 that this book is about the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, okay? It is concerning the subject matter of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. You know what John means when he says that? Let me just give you a hint. John tells us what he means. Because later in verse 9, he says that he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay? That's John's way of saying it is the good news, the gospel of Jesus, that he came, he died, he was resurrected, he ascended on high. Okay? John was imprisoned for declaring the gospel. Now what he says is this book of Revelation is concerning the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is the good news. This is about the death, resurrection, ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, as it were, Christ on, his, on the earth. This is uh, having ascended to high. This is his last living will and testament given to us. The revelation of Jesus Christ through the mouth of John the Apostle. Okay? That's why this book is applicable to us because it deals with the best thing ever done or happened in the course of history. For us on our behalf. Listen to how Leon Morris describes it. He says, history is the sphere in which God has wrought our redemption. The really critical thing in history of mankind has already taken place. And it took place here on this earth in the affairs of men. The lamb as it had been slain dominates the entire book of Revelation. John sees Christ as victorious and having won the victory through his death, an event in history. His people share in his triumph, but they've conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Now listen to this point. This is it. The pessimism which defers God's saving activity until the end is absent from this book. Though John depicts evil realistically, his book is fundamentally optimistic. And why is Revelation optimistic? Because it's a book about Christ who is now seated on his throne. The reigning Christ, the supreme Christ, the one who is king over all, the one who has subdued his enemies, the one who is victorious, who has conquered death and conquered sin and conquered the grave, and now who reigns victoriously forevermore. That's what this book of Revelation is about. And you might be asking the question, how can Christ be reigning and sin still be happening and us still be experiencing trials? That's a good question. And it's one we're going to answer in the coming weeks. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this book. And I thank you that you spoke through the mouth of the Apostle John to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And that now this, your word, is applicable to us. And so we ask our Father that you would, by your Spirit, reveal to us all that you have for us. That we would know not only there's a purpose for our trials and our suffering, but also that your Son, Jesus Christ, is victorious. 
that he now sits on his throne, that he now reigns from heaven, that his blood has covered our sin, and that we are simply waiting for the final realization of everything that is true in heaven and true in the church and true in our hearts. We thank you that you care so much for us that you sent your Son. And we ask this morning that we would worship you in spirit and in truth through the Lamb who was slain, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask all of this in his name. Amen.